You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. passage we are going to be drawing our attention to this morning is verses 37 through 39 of John chapter 7. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray together. Our God, your word is to us light and truth. It is the means by which you have revealed yourself to us and you sanctify and draw us nearer to you. We pray that you would give to us a hunger and a thirst for your word. And with that, we pray that you would give to us light and understanding in your word. O Spirit of truth, be our teacher this morning that we may understand what you have revealed here that points to Jesus Christ. And may you use your word to fill our hearts with wonder, love and praise and affection for him that the Father might be glorified through the Son and the power of the Spirit through us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, man has a universal problem. The thing that we all share in common is sin. We are born under sin. We're born under the law, under the curse of sin. We are born with a sin nature. We have a sin nature from the moment of our conception. Sin is our universal condition, our universal problem. The one thing that is not universal to all of mankind is the realization that we have a universal problem. Not every man thirsts, though every man and woman born has reason to thirst and is in a condition in which should cause us thirst. As we saw last week, not all people thirst after righteousness or hunger and thirst for salvation. Not all men understand that they're sinners. And not all men and women are made to feel the thirst of their sin. Not everybody who is born blind understands that they are blind. In fact, that is one of the proofs of our depravity is that we, in our fallenness, as unredeemed, unregenerate sinners, we are born blind, and yet how many of us, when we were blind, realized that we were blind? Mankind does not understand that he's blind. He doesn't even realize he's blind. He is so unself-aware as that the man who is born blind, spiritually blind, is completely unaware of the fact that he is blind, and in fact, unredeemed man would insist that he can see. Right? That's why he's not a believer. Is because the unbeliever looks at you and insists that he can see and know something that you don't see and know. And that is why he rejects the Gospels, because he has such an understanding of truth. And if it were truly true, and worth believing is true, then he would embrace it. But he doesn't embrace that, because fallen man, though he is blind, is ignorant to the fact that he is blind, and thinks he can see, and actually insists that he can see. He is lost but he doesn't understand that he's lost. Have you ever been in the woods and been lost before, hunting? I've been in the woods and I've been lost. There's only one thing worse than being lost and knowing you're lost. And that is being lost and not knowing that you're lost. I have been in both of those conditions. I have been lost and not known it. And then there is that stunning realization when you realize, I'm lost. It's the opposite of deja vu. You realize to yourself, this is someplace that I've never been before. And now I am lost. There's only one condition worse than being lost, and that is to be lost 
and to not know that you are lost. There's only one thing worse than being blind, and that is to be blind and to not even be aware of the fact that you are blind. That is lost and fallen man. Dead, thinking he's alive. Blind, thinking he can see. Lost, not even realizing that he is lost. That is the most horrible condition that you and I can be in. And that is the most, that is the most, uh, horrible condition, but it is, it is the condition of fallen men. It is the condition of the unregenerate heart. What we needed before we got saved was for the Spirit of God to open our eyes to the fact that we were blind. For us to realize, hey, I'm blind. I'm dead. I am hopeless. I am helpless. I am lost. I am without the very thing that I need. I have no righteousness of my own. And we are grateful that the Spirit of God opened our eyes to that and caused us to thirst. Well, we're looking in John chapter 7 at this invitation that Jesus gives at the great feast on the last day of the feast in verses 37 and 38. And then there is an interpretation in verse 39. And I offered to you last week four features of the text that will serve as our guide as we work our way through the details of the text. Now, those four features of the text didn't have to guide us far because we didn't get very far when we got to the first feature, which was the problem. Do you remember the four features? The problem, the provision, the promise, and then a person. The problem is our thirst. The provision is Christ. The promise is to all who will believe that we receive rivers of living water within us. From our innermost being flow out these rivers of living water. And then the person is the person of the Holy Spirit. The problem is our thirst, and we looked at that last week. And then we looked at, now today we're looking at the provision of that. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, and we noticed last week how general and broad is that invitation, it's to anybody. You don't have to be somebody who has not sinned to a certain point. You don't have to be a person who has not committed certain types of sin. It doesn't matter what race you are, what gender you are, what background you are, how bad of a sinner you are. It is an open invitation to anybody who senses that spiritual thirst. And we saw that that, that spiritual thirst is an, that thirst is an analogy for a spiritual thirst. It is the, 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 the crushing of our conscience. That sudden awareness that I am blind, I am deaf, I am dumb, I am without life, I am without hope, I cannot do anything, I am without an ability, I am unrighteous in the sight of God, I lack everything that He demands of me. That is that thirst. And you crave something to satisfy all of those needs of the soul. That's the thirst that is being described there. So Jesus says in verse 37, this is the problem, if anyone thirsts, now here is the provision, or the prescription, if you want another P word, Let him come to me and drink. If you thirst, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Christ and to drink. So what is it that Jesus holds out as the universal cure for this universal problem? Himself. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Here's what I find interesting. Not everybody who thirsts comes to Jesus. Right? Now, I want to, I want to flesh out sort of an, uh, how would I say this? I want to flesh out an area of theology or an issue of theology, but I don't want you to be confused as to what I might be saying. Might be saying something else. You're already confused. So let me, let me back up just a bit. I believe in what theologians call the effectual call of God. That is that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. None of them will not come. All of those whom the Father, this is John chapter 6, verse 35 and following, all of those whom the Father has given to the Son will without fail, come to the Son. Now, no man, Jesus says in John 6.44, is able to come to Him, but God secures that coming in those who are unable by drawing them by His Spirit to His Son. One of the means by which the Father does that is by the Spirit of God creating within us a thirst for Christ. What is it that 
What is it that makes a person who is blind to his blindness see his blindness? That is the Spirit of God. That is the work of the Spirit of God. So that the Father, through the Spirit, the Spirit draws all of those whom the Father has given to the Son to the Son, because we can't come on our own. So the Spirit draws us. We affirm that from John chapter 6. So while it is true that not all men who should thirst do thirst, it is also true that not all men who realize or know their thirst will come to Christ to find that thirst satisfied. It is a blessed few that actually feel their thirst. It is even a blessed fewer that having felt their thirst will seek after the Lord Jesus Christ to satisfy that thirst. Now do you want an example of that? A couple of biblical examples of that? We could give a biblical example of those shallow disciples in John chapter 6. Did they come to Jesus? Yeah, they did. They came to Him to meet what they thought was their spiritual need. They wanted, they had physical needs. They came to Him. They were willing to listen to Him up to a certain point. They came to Him. They knew that they had a need, but what did they do when He presented the cure for their need? They turned and they walked away. How about Judas? Judas was another one of those. How about the rich young ruler? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler knew of his thirst. He felt the thirst. And he knew that Jesus could present a cure for that thirst and could provide something or at least would know of what he needed to do to satisfy that thirst. But what happened to the rich young ruler? He turned and he walked away. How about all of those who are gathered for this feast on the great day of the feast? Do you think that they experienced thirst and knew of thirst? They certainly did. That whole pageantry that I described last week, the water ceremony, the sacrifice, the prayer, the symbolism, the singing of the songs, all of that was the acting out of a prayer for satisfaction for that thirst. They wanted the Messiah. They longed for the Messiah. They were begging God for the Messiah. They knew they needed a deliverer. They had a a sacrifice right on the altar in the middle of the temple courtyard. A sacrifice for sin. And they had sung the songs that recognized that they were sinners and that they needed a deliverer. And they prayed that God would give them a deliverer, send the deliverer, and pour out the Holy Spirit upon us to quench our thirst. That was the, the whole temple was filled with people who were praying and singing that. And when Jesus got up and presented Himself as the satisfaction for the thirst, how many of them actually came to Him? See, not everybody who feels or is made to feel that thirst will actually find that satisfaction for that thirst in Jesus Christ. In fact, many people will die and go to their grave having tried to quench that thirst with every conceivable offer under the sun and having neglected to seek after Christ who is the only satisfaction for that thirst. The Mormon and the Jehovah's Witness who shows up at your front door knows that they need a Savior. That's why they're a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. But they do not realize that they are seeking after and trusting in the wrong Savior. But they know their thirst, don't they? They have sensed something. But if they die and they go to their graves without the real Jesus Christ, they will die having never had that thirst quenched. So this is Jesus' offer. Do you thirst? Come to me. Come to me. That is so simple, is it not? Such a graciously simple offer. No 12-step program. No 10 principles to live by. Not an affirmation, okay, you need to do this and that and the other thing. No mention of keeping the law. No mention of affirming the Sabbath. No mention of getting married in a temple. No mention of being confirmed by this person or going to this church or observing this ordinance. Jesus doesn't heap upon them all of the things that the Pharisees would have heaped upon them to keep and to observe and to obey in order to receive righteousness and eternal life. Just such a simple offer. Do you thirst? Come and drink. How much simpler could that be? That is so simple. He said, Jim, if it's so simple, why do so few find that? You ever wonder why that is? The invitation is given to everybody. And it's such a simple offer. 
Why do so few find that? Do you know why so few find that? Because of John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now Jesus is inviting people to come, and in the previous chapter he said, no man can come. Is he schizophrenic? Has he lost his mind? Is he contradicting himself? Does he not remember what he said six months earlier? How are we to understand this invitation to people to come when he has just affirmed in the previous chapter, no one can come? And John chapter 6 is filled with invitations to believe. Come to me, I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, receive me to yourself. If you believe upon me, I will not cast you out. You come to me and I will not turn you away. In fact, if you come to me, I will raise you up on the last day. I will save you, I will sanctify you, I will secure you all the way to all of eternity because I will lose none of that which the Father has given to me. So all you have to do is come. And yet he affirms in chapter 6, no one can come. So though the invitation is given to all men, who is it that's actually able to lay hold of that invitation, according to Jesus? None. In ourselves, apart from the Spirit of God, how many people can actually come? One, two, three, half a dozen? How many? John 6.44, none. No one can come to me. John 6.65, Jesus said, It is for this reason that I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father. So how broad is the invitation to eternal life? Who do we preach the gospel to? A few people? Only those who are unable to come? Or everybody? Everybody. The offer is given to everybody, but how many are actually able to come? No man is actually able to come. Listen, your inability and my inability to lay hold in our own strength on eternal life does not negate the offer. Hear that again. Your inability and my inability to lay hold in our own strength of eternal life does not negate the offer. The offer is legitimate. Come and drink, and whosoever will, come. He will give you eternal life. That is the offer of the gospel. And yet who is able to lay hold of that? No man, unless the Spirit of God does a work and draws that person to the Son, he will not be able to come to the Son. That is why those who actually feel their thirst and actually have their thirst quenched by Christ are not the majority. They are the few. They are the, those who belong to the narrow gate, and only a few have come. What is, it that, what is it that coming means in the context? Does it mean just to approach unto Jesus? Is it an emotional experience? What is Jesus describing here? The coming that he is describing is synonymous with belief. If you thirst, come to me and drink. And what he is saying is, if you have felt your need for life, then believe upon me, and you will have life. The coming is synonymous with believing. There are two things in the text that indicate that. First, Jesus couples the coming with drinking. It is to come and to drink. It's not the type of coming described in John 6 where the crowds came to him. It's not the type of coming that would be descriptive of Judas who simply approached into him and hung around with Jesus for a period of time. It is the type of coming described in John chapter 6 when Jesus says, you come to me, you drink my blood, you eat my flesh, you appropriate me, you respond in repentance and faith, and you cast all of your hope for eternal life upon me. That is the type of coming that is described. And you can think of it this way. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand again between those who will come to him to a point within arm's length, like the crowd in John 6, and those who actually come to him and embrace his offer of eternal life and drink of Him and the life that He gives. To come to the Son is not to come within arm's length and then to say, I will accept some of this, but the rest I can do without. To come to the Son is not even an emotional experience. Though it might be wracked with emotion, it's not primarily an emotion. Some people think that they've come to the Son because they had an emotional experience. I attended the meeting. right? I raised my hand. I stood up. When the, when the guy asked us to bow our head and, and every eye closed and every head, head bowed, 
to raise my hand. I raised my hand. I felt an emotion, a warming, a burning in my bosom. That's not what it means to come to Christ. Come to Christ is not even to associate yourself with his people and with his purposes and with his agenda. It has nothing to do with baptism. It has nothing to do with church membership. It has nothing to do with serving in a church or helping other people out or needy or giving or any of that. You can do all of those things in order to try and satisfy your thirst and yet die a thirsty man or woman because you have never actually come to the Son. To come to him is to repent and turn from your sin and to hit your knees and to bow down and to surrender your life to Christ, believing upon him in humble, obedient, repentant faith. That is what coming is. It's not just approaching unto him. It is embracing him and saying, I will obey you because you are Lord and you are God and you have bought me with a price. I am your slave. That's what it means to come to Christ. Second thing that indicates that he is speaking of belief is verse 38 when he restates this proposition as a promise. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This whole idea of coming and believing, if you could turn back a page or two to John 6, 35, you see how Jesus ties believing and coming together. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Those are two parallel statements. Come to me, you will not hunger. Believe in me, you will never thirst. Parallel statements. The coming is believing. And when you come and when you believe, you never hunger and you never thirst for eternal life again. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. To come to Christ is to be raised up on the last day. To believe on Christ is to be raised up on the last day. Those two things are synonymous. Look down at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. What does it mean to come to Christ? It means to believe savingly upon him. Not to be associated with him. Not to align yourself with his purposes. Not to adopt his moral teachings. Not to adopt some of his principles for life. Not to add him to your sort of uh, your, your hopper as one of your spiritual gurus to give you a little extra power to get through the week. None of that is to come to Christ. To come to him is to surrender to him as a slave who has bought you from the marketplace of sin, and to receive from him eternal life. That is what it means to come to Christ. Now notice in John 6.38 or 37 that Jesus points to himself, to himself as the one that will satisfy your thirst. What is it that God prescribes for us to meet our need? You and I hunger and thirst for Christ or for life, and so he gives us the one who is the life. Jesus doesn't point to something outside of himself, but to himself. And this by the way, is an indication of his deity. All of the language in John 7 speaks of living water and of of being dry and thirsty and wanting water would call to the Jewish mind a passage in Jeremiah chapter 2. And I'm going to read that to you. You can turn there if you want, but it's Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 is filled with discussion and uh, words that describe God, the, the people turning away from God, departing from God, forsaking God. Jeremiah actually uses the term apostasies, which means to turn away. Because Jeremiah chapter 2 describes the turning of the people from God to idols, to serve other idols. 
So Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2, and this is God speaking through Jeremiah, Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. Verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns which can hold no water. You hear that? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Now in that, in that climate, and it was an arid climate, there were two types of water. There was water that would be found in a cistern, because they would hew cisterns out of the rock, and they would uh, find ways of collecting or storing water in that cistern so that during the rainy season, so that in the dry season, they would have a supply of water. Now the water in that cistern, as you can imagine, would become, well, it would warm up, wouldn't it? After a period of time, it would get kind of warm, especially in an arid, dry, hot climate. It would also become very stagnant. It would become a still pool. Now the water would be usable. It wouldn't be great, but it would be usable, right? Then there was other kinds of water. There's another kind of water. There was what they would call, and they had a word to describe it, a living water, or a bubbling water, a flowing water. It was water that would come from a spring. Or a water that would come from like Jacob's well, for instance. It, Jacob's well was sunk on a spring of water, so the water in the bottom of that well was always fresh, always clear, always clean, cold, bubbling up, a constant supply of water right into Jacob's well. There was the cistern water, and there was living or fresh, bubbling, refreshing water. Now here's what the people of Jeremiah Day had done. They had turned from God to serve idols, and this is how God likens it. You have turned from a fountain, a constantly fresh, constantly flowing bubbling, living source of clean, clear, pure, beautiful water. You have turned from that because that is available and instead you have done all of the work of hewing out of rock a cistern. And it's a leaky cistern. And then with the fountain right next door, you go through all of the work of collecting water so that you can pour it into this stagnant pool in the hopes of eating this, or drinking this this, uh, stagnant, still, warm water. Not only that, but you have hewn out a broken cistern that can't even hold water. So what's worse than hewing out a cistern? Going through all of that work. Hewing out a broken cistern. And then what's worse than filling that broken cistern with water? Filling it up with water to have it all drain out into the earth so that you have nothing. And instead of just going to the fountain, which is always clean, always pure, always clear, and receiving living, bubbling, fresh, clean, wonderful water, you go after that cistern and you look in the cistern day after day and it's dry. Maybe if we pour some more water in there, it'll be there tomorrow. And it's dry. It's like a well that promises to refresh you, but it cannot. That's the picture that's being described by Jesus. If you come to me, he says, I will give you living waters. Now listen to Jeremiah 2, verse 13 again. And ask yourself, if Jesus is offering living waters by coming to him, what does this say about Jesus? Listen to Jeremiah 2, 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me... That is God, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Who is it that is the fountain of living waters, according to Jeremiah 2.13? It's an easy question. Every Sunday school kid can answer this. Even my youngest thinks God is the answer to every question that we ask during our family time together. Who is the fountain of living waters? God is the fountain of living waters. So when Jesus says, come to me and drink... And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He is pointing to himself as what? 
the fountain of living waters. No prophet, no priest, no apostle, no king, no mere man could ever make a statement like that. That is an offer that can only be made by God. And if Jesus is pointing, to put it another way, if Jesus is not God, then for Him to point to Himself as the one to satisfy somebody's spiritual thirst, He is in fact drawing people's attention and affections away from God to commit idolatry if He is not in fact God. He, Jesus, is the fountain of living waters, and so He can point to Himself and say, if you will come and drink of Me and stop hewing out for yourselves broken cisterns, trying to fill them with stagnant water, I will be to you a source of ever-living and ever-flowing, clear clean, beautiful, fresh, cold water. Vivid imagery, is it not? It is. Well, that's the prescription or the God's provision. It is Christ. Our our problem is our thirst. God's provision is His Son. And now I want you to look at the third thing, the promise. That's in verse 38 where the the same thing is stated, but here is a promise. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He who believes in me, and this is the promise to you by God's word, if you will believe upon the Son, then out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you notice how abundant that provision is? If you are thirsty physically, I mean, you're just parched. You're dry. Your mouth is dry like mine is right now. And your mouth is dry and you are thirsty. Utterly parched to the point where you feel like your tongue is swelling up in the back of your mouth and you can't even move your tongue because it feels like you've been chewing on cotton all day long. That type of thirst. What is required to meet that need to quench your thirst? How much water? I mean, a cup, right? A cup would be nice. That's a good start. But really, would you need a full gallon? You probably feel like you could drink a whole gallon, but could you do, could you do a whole gallon? It would be painful. You could probably get yourself to drink a whole gallon. How about two gallons? Two gallons would be more than enough, right? In fact, if you had two gallons of, of fresh, clean water, you would have enough to satisfy the thirst of probably two people adequately. But do you know that Jesus, notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you thirst, come to me, I'll give you a cup of cold water. He doesn't even say, I'll give you a gallon of water or two gallons of water. In fact, he doesn't even say, I'll give you a pool of water. What does he say? He doesn't even say, I'll give you a river of living water, but rivers of living water. Now, no matter how thirsty you are, can you drink a whole river? Just one? You can't, can you? You can't drink a whole river. You may feel like you can drink a whole river, but you can't. But if you are really thirsty, can you drink rivers, plural? You can't. This is the picture that's being described. You come to me, and this is your thirst. Now, to us, it feels like it's huge when we don't know Christ, and we've made aware of our sin. Our thirst seems utterly overwhelming. Utterly overwhelming. And it feels like it is massive. But Jesus is saying, this is your thirst, and you come to me to drink of that, and I can provide for you rivers, not one, but multiple rivers of living water to satiate, to satisfy your thirst. It is an abundant supply. So abundant that the picture is actually of somebody receiving enough that out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water to other people. That's the picture. The Christian who has come to drink of Christ has received more than enough to satisfy his own thirst. In fact, the believer who has come to to find satisfaction for his thirst in Christ has received enough to satiate not only his own thirst, but the thirst of any and all around him who will listen, right? And that's the picture. We are not, we ought not to be, sometimes we are, we ought not to be selfish and think that we can keep living water to ourselves. Because the believer is somebody, when he is other-centered, realizes, I have received not only enough to satisfy my thirst, but look at, I can, I can actually satisfy the thirst of a number of people around me. 
And out of me, through the ministry of the Spirit of God, will flow rivers of refreshment and living water to others. How does that happen through us and to us? It happens when I, as a Christian husband, say, look, I have received enough grace that I can be not only obedient to my own Lord in 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 uh, appropriating this grace and receiving this grace to myself, but I can actually be a source of refreshment to my wife and my children. And I can be a source of refreshment to my neighbors and my coworkers and my families and my friends. When I serve them and I am other people-centered, then the Spirit of God begins to work through us in our spiritual gifts, whether it's teaching or serving or ministering or, or giving or whatever it is, the Spirit of God begins to work through us in our spiritual gifts so that we are a source of refreshment to all the people who are around us. But I haven't received, I have not received just enough to satisfy my thirst. Jesus is saying, this is your thirst. I'll meet that. And I'll give you so much grace, so much provision that you will actually be a source of encouragement and refreshment to any and all around you. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And that is a description of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are introduced to the, I shouldn't say we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. John, tells us that this is what Jesus is speaking of in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's verse 39. So John is telling us in verse 39 that when Jesus talks about rivers of living water, he is talking about the Spirit of God, which was yet future to them at the time that this was spoken. It's past to us. But that Spirit of God that we have received, that's what Jesus is describing. You're going to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and He will flow out of you to all the people around you and you will find your thirst has been satisfied. And that's the person, the person of the text in verse 39, which we will get to next week. Not today, because we're going to jump on the topic of the Holy Spirit next week when we look at verse 39. Here's a couple of things I want you to recognize. What is it that you and I truly thirst for in our unsaved state? And I'm talking about when we, when our eyes have been opened and our hearts have been made aware of the fact that we are dead and that we need salvation. What is it that we thirst for? Do you realize that the thirst that Jesus is describing is not a thirst for other things that he meets? It is a thirst for him which we foolishly seek to meet with other things. Let me say that again. The thirst that he is describing is not a thirst for other things that he steps in to meet. It is a thirst for Him that we foolishly seek to meet with other things. Let me describe, let me describe how that works. Sometimes you'll hear the gospel presented this way. Do you thirst for significance? Do you want to see God do something big? Do you want to be part of God's big story? Do you want to know truly, true greatness? Do you want a better life? Do you want a better golf swing? Do you want a better parking place? You want a better job? You want a better wife? You want a better marriage? You want a better family? You want better kids? Come to Jesus. All of these things that you seek for, and all of these things that you thirst for, Jesus, if you just add Him to the mix, will step in and meet the thirst that you have for all of these other things. That is a perversion of the Gospel. Because the thirst that Jesus is describing is not a thirst for all of these other things. As if Jesus is just a means, and you can use Jesus or Deepak Chopra or the teachings of Oprah Winfrey or whoever you want to sort of jump in and meet the need that you feel, the thirst for all of these other things. He's describing a thirst for Him that we foolishly seek to meet by all of these other means. When really what we thirst for, when we are made to thirst by the Spirit of God, is Jesus Christ. And then we foolishly think, I can satisfy that by grabbing this idol and putting it into the mix, or this teaching, or this man's wisdom, or this thing, or that thing. What is it that the Spirit of God makes us to thirst for in order to drive us to Christ? Christ. Christ. That's what He makes us to thirst for. And then here's the beauty of this plan. The Spirit of God, having made us thirst for Christ, 
steps in and gives us what? Everything else? No. Christ. So that what we thirst for is perfectly met by what we are given by God. I thirst for eternal life. I have eternal life. I thirst for a clean conscience. He cleanses my conscience. I thirst for righteousness that I need to stand in His presence. He gives me His righteousness. Everything that I have thirst for, which draws me to Christ, is provided for me in Christ. And that's key. The thirst that he's describing is not a thirst for other things that Jesus meets. It's a thirst for Jesus that we foolishly seek to meet with other things. Second, I want you to notice how abundantly sufficient Jesus is and is and is presented here in our text. How abundantly sufficient he is. We live in a day where we are told, look, Jesus is just one of many roads. He's not the truth. He's a truth. He's not the way. He's a way. He's not the life. He's a life. And you can take Jesus or Deepak Chopra or Oprah Winfrey or Anthony Robbins or Zig Ziglar or any one of these guys and any of the teachings of the wisdom of men or a study or a survey or whatever it is and you just add all of that truth together and if you're finding dissatisfaction, just grab Jesus and add him to the mix. And I'm sure he'll give you more power, more purpose, more significance, more strength for today, hope for tomorrow, all of the good things, the love and hugs and kisses and all the wonderful stuff that we want. Jesus will provide all of that to you if you just come to him. Jesus is not presented to us as one of many things that we add into our hopper to simply get us up past the level or to put us past the bar. Jesus is entirely and completely sufficient. If I have him, what else do I need? Absolutely nothing. He is sufficient. Are you convinced of that, believer? Are you convinced that God has provided for you in Christ everything you need to meet every single need you will ever experience for this life and for all of eternity? Are you utterly convinced of that? Or have you begun to add Jesus to the mix and then think that you can hew out for yourself a cistern and fill it with water? And Jesus is good, but Jesus plus a little bit of this or a little bit of that, that that is an inadequate view of Jesus. In Him is contained all of the wisdom of God, all of the knowledge of God, all of the perfections of God, all of the attributes of God. Everything in Him is sufficient. I have in His Word everything I need for life and for godliness. I need nothing outside of God's Word for life and for godliness, for life and sanctification, and I need nothing beyond Jesus Christ to provide for my every need, my thirst and my hunger. Now, the thirst that he is describing in the text is a thirst for life. Having met that, does that mean that believers, you and I, never thirst for anything else at any other time? Do we thirst after we get saved? Do you thirst after the living God? Do you wish that you could know more of him? Do you wish that you were closer to him? I thirst for that. The thirst that's described in John chapter 7 is the thirst for salvation. What is it that creates the thirst of salvation? Why is it that I thirst? It's because I'm dead and I'm a sinner, because of my iniquities which are over my head, because of all of my unrighteousness, because I'm in darkness and death. That is what creates the thirst, or that's the situation that causes this thirst that I'm oblivious to. What is it that causes my thirst after the living God when I say I'm like a deer that pants for the water and I want to know more of God. I want to draw closer to Him. I want to be more obedient. I want to struggle with sin less. What is it that creates that thirst? It's not sin and iniquity. You know what it is? It is my new nature. See, these are two different types of thirst. There is the thirst for salvation, which is created by sin. There is the thirst for sanctification, which is the product of having a renewed heart and a regenerated heart, and being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and coming to know the one true God. So now as a believer, I don't, I no longer thirst after salvation. I've got that. Look, I don't, I don't thirst to have my sins forgiven. Quenched. Forever. 
My thirst for salvation has been quenched. I no longer thirst after a righteousness to stand in God's presence. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't long for that anymore. I have that. I don't, I don't thirst for a clean conscience. My conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You know what I thirst for now? I long for the day when I will be free from this body of death. When all of my affections, without any distractions, will be able to focus on loving and praising and worshiping God and knowing Him deeper. That's what I thirst for now. Now I thirst after the living God to know Him. I don't thirst after eternal life. But the same Spirit that causes the thirst for salvation in the unbeliever is the same Spirit of God that causes the thirst for sanctification in the believer. So what is it that meets the need or the thirst for sanctification in the believer? Guess what? It's the same Spirit of God. Jesus is adequate not only to save me, but to sanctify me and draw me near to Him. So here's what that looks like when we pursue and find our thirst quenched, our thirst for sanctification quenched. When I long for the living God and I feel those affections in my soul, I begin to stir those and inflame them and pursue them. I want to pursue holiness. And I make myself to pursue holiness. And I ask the Spirit of God, incline my heart to you, energize my heart to serve you, Make my affections to be focused and satisfied by Christ and Him only. And then when I feel myself drawn to God, I pursue that. I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. I pursue holiness. I seek to cast off all of the weights that prohibit me from serving and loving God as I should. And I desire to set my affections on Him. And I pray to that end. And I read Scripture and I listen to Scripture and I seek to obey and I seek to express my longings for love and satisfaction in Him. So when I thirst for sanctification, I pursue it in Him, asking Him to meet that need, trusting that He will do so, and in seeking to incline my heart to Him so that I will pursue Him. But listen, when you feel that need for sanctification and that desire to draw near to the Lord, and when instead you turn away from Him and you begin to seek satisfaction for that and something else, you know what you're doing? The same thing as Jeremiah 2, verse 13. You're hewing out cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. And you're, you're seeking or chasing after an idol to satisfy what only Christ offers. If I find that my thirst is not quenched by Him, it is due to no inadequacy in Him. If I find that my thirst is not quenched by Him, it is not due to an inadequacy in my Savior. You know what it is due to? My own sin and iniquity. It is my own heart that keeps me from receiving the satisfaction for my thirst, whether that is a thirst for salvation that I had before I got saved, or whether it is the thirst for sanctification that I have after I got saved. The Spirit of God creates both of those thirsts. The Spirit of God satisfies both of those thirsts in the person of Christ who is utterly and completely sufficient. So that is the problem, the provision, and the promise. And next week, Lord willing, verse 39, we will look at the person, which is the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together as we close. Our God, we thank You that You have created in us the thirst for eternal life that You have then satisfied in Your Son, that You have made us to be aware of our own blindness and made us to thirst after Your Son. And then You have met that need, that thirst in us and those who are Yours by quenching it by the Spirit and regenerating our hearts that we might seek You and know You and incline our hearts to You. So we thank You for such a wonderful salvation and we thank You also that You continue the process of sanctification by making us to thirst after Christ and knowing Him deeper. Grant that, we pray. Continue to draw our hearts near to You that we might be sanctified by Your truth 
and that we might know you deeper each and every day. Incline our hearts to you. Energize our hearts to seek after you. You are sufficient and convince us of that sufficiency. You are there and you meet every need and we thank you that there is no inadequacy in Christ for anything that we face in this life or the life to come. And may your blessing and your grace rest upon all those who belong to you and are yours, not only for today, but also for eternity. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and his honor. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.